Rammstein meeting scales up arms supplies to Ukraine. But is it enough? You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. In this episode of our series Around Ukraine, we discuss the 9th Rammstein meeting held this week, the latest mass wave of Russian missile strikes against Ukraine, with one missile allegedly flying over a NATO member state territory, and increasing calls from the Western governments to their nationals to leave the territories of Russia and Belarus. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, I'm Ukraine World's chief editor and Ukrainian philosopher and journalist. I speak to Ukraine World's analyst Maxim Panchenko. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine, brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can also support our humanitarian trips to the front line at paypal ukraine.resistinggmail.com. So we continue our series around Ukraine. Maxim Panchenko is with me. Welcome, Maxim. Hello, thank you. Uh, so what were the key topics uh, around Ukraine in the international environment which were important last week? So the most uh, burning topic uh, is the one that is happening virtually today. This is the uh, an, this is another meeting in the Ramstein format. Uh, also, we have had the uh, new round of missile attacks from Russia last week, and uh, this also had to do with several other countries through the airspace of which uh, several rockets passed. Uh, also, there has been the visit of the Hungary's, uh, Hungary's uh, foreign minister to Minsk, so we're going to talk about the implications about that. Uh, also, uh, there has been have been some statements like, for instance, from President of Poland, Duda, about the need to step up and to make more urgent deliveries of arms to Ukraine. Uh, and uh, going to Asia, which we don't do so often, there are news about uh, Pakistan providing uh, military equipment to Ukraine. So we're going to dwell on that too. So let's start with the Rammstein. We don't have, of course, the um, the con- conclusions yet, the results yet. But what are the discussions in Ukraine? What should we expect? What, uh, what Ukrainian authorities have made Ukrainian public uh, to expect are several things. First of all, this is the, um, the development of the so-called tank coalition. Uh, and I think I already have seen preliminary news from the Rammstein meeting today uh, or from around um, events around it that uh, even more tanks are going to be uh, delivered to Ukraine from a bigger amount of countries and most of those tanks would be Leopard. Uh, so this is stepping up, this is developing that trend that was set a couple of weeks back. Uh, also, still I think the biggest issue on the agenda is the similar uh, planes coalition if the issue if that if that red line for, for the west for the time being is crossed uh, so ukrainian uh, authorities have been consistently pushing for this to happen and i think they are going to use this opportunity today to to try to make the west to to basically cross that red line so we'll see from the uh, from the outcomes later today and uh, also there are smaller but no less important things like for instance uh, the thing of the training of ukrainian military I I think uh, the the programs, the already existing programs, can be expected to be uh, expanded. 
uh, and uh, well, also there is this issue of discussing the so-called arms race between Ukraine and its partners on the one hand and Russia on the other hand, because there have been increasingly more talks recently about that this war and the you know how it is going to go henceforth is about who is going to win the race of logistics of enough uh, of enough ammunition you know so it's about the industry not just about the battlefield and i think this is something that is going to be uh, coordinated today yeah because i think that uh, yeah commitments of arms is important but we we should understand that russians still have lots of arms still have lots of tanks and there is a big question right now whether for example leopard 1 tanks are as good as leopard 2 mm-hmm. because uh, what i have read in the analytics that basically leopard 1 are completely different from leopard 2 leopard 2 is really an upgraded version while the leopard 1 are actually the tanks which are more or less the same as russian tanks and do not do not provide a strategic uh, strategic uh, advantage of Ukraine and uh, we primarily get Leopard 1 tanks not Le- Leopard 2 the, the Leopard 2 are just counted in dozens as far as I mm-hmm. I have seen but of course we we understand that lots of information can be hidden and another question is um, whether whether these uh, these supplies will be enough for Ukrainian counteroffensive, or they would rather match the forces given the Russian offensive, because Russian offensive has begun. Let's let's say it clearly. What mm-hmm. we uh, are seeing in around Bakhmut, what we've seen in Vuhledar, uh, the situation around Bakhmut is getting more and more difficult. It is slowly being encircled by the Russian forces. There are lots of men, lots of artillery, lots of tanks, even aviation. And uh, so the question is when these supplies will arrive, if they are, if will arrive now, in one month, in two months, by summer, and whether they will ensure Ukrainian counteroffensive or just be matching increased forces of the Russian Federation. Yes, I agree. And I think from what I've seen from the news, it was only yesterday that uh, Ukrainian servicemen started uh, being trained in uh, Germany, I think, uh, to to use this Leopard tanks. So given that, I think we should uh, expect this to last for maybe up to eight weeks or something. I don't think this is a very... Um, easy thing to do to uh, to learn use this very different technology from the one that Ukrainian tankists have have been used to so far. So yes, uh, I think what we're talking here realistically is a couple of months time. And uh, yes, uh, regarding the matter of Leopard One being less advanced, I think um, once again I've heard that this can be compared more or less with the qualities of the T seventy two Soviet tank. And yes, of course, we have had these conversations in Ukraine, like Russia has been forced to use not only like 1072s or even 10 T-64s, uh, like the older Soviet tanks, because the newer have been destroyed. But look, guys, these tanks may be destroyed by Ukrainians, but they can still fire in the meantime. And uh, by judging by the sheer quantity of the equipment that, you, that Russia has amassed, uh, it can do a lot of damage. So yes, uh, that 
uh, that competition is uh, still ongoing and the concern is uh, very relevant here. Um, as far as I understand, f uh, part partially based on uh, on this uh, situation with the deliveries and the and the terms of the deliveries, uh, the strategy now is to hold on to the ground. I mean, about Ukraine to hold on to the ground uh, for another couple of months to try to wear out this new wave of mobilized people and equipment that Russia has amassed, and then to try to uh, go uh, into a counteroffensive. That's the idea. Maybe, maybe, but of course, history is unpredictable. What we have, what we see right now is that Ukrainians, uh, despite the fact that Russia Russians are on offensive in the eastern Ukraine, but uh, they actually suffer from uh, some local defeats like it was in Vuhledar there was a couple of days ago mm -hmm. when a huge column of Russian tanks was totally destroyed by the Ukrainians there was about some dozens of tanks I think the, I, sorry I think the ratio of the equipment destroyed was 1 to 17 in favor of Ukraine so yes so I, th I think there were maybe up to up to 30 tanks or armored vehicles destroyed and we have seen this shootage from the from the drones and uh, there is a lot of panic by the way in the in the russian propaganda who are saying that look why hasn't russian army uh, learned uh, on its mistakes because it was like a repetition of the situation in february and march when these huge columns of tanks were easily destroyed by the ukrainians and uh, by the footage shows that the, the the strikes of Ukrainian army were very very precise. And I think one of the things that we are thinking, we should be thinking about, it's that we need high precision arms not only to advance to make offensive, but also to protect our people, protect our personnel, because we see, we see that Russians do not care about their own soldiers, and uh, they have more people and. Uh, this, the tactics is just you know sometimes when I when I when I'm listening to these tactics it's just completely dehumanizing when they send uh, soldiers with huge number of arms on every individual soldier why because this soldier will die but the the the, the arms like mortar guns will be there a little bit advanced and the next wave of soldiers will come more quickly and, and get these guns I mean this is just just incredible horrifying tactics. So let's let's see what is what is going on. I still have the impression that uh, the democratic world is the free world is helping Ukraine, but still doesn't consider this war as as their war. They're still talking about Ukraine war and whatever else, while Russia is perceiving this war as the war against the West. New round of missile attacks we had um, a couple of days ago. It was. Um, primarily on Friday, right? On Friday, mm -hmm. last Friday. And uh, there was quite a big number of missile attacks. And uh, remarkably, we don't really see, sitting in Kiev and me sitting in Bravari, we don't really see big consequences for our energy sector. That might mean that Ukraine has decentralized its energy system, thanks to international support as well. And now it's much less vulnerable. So we don't have electricity cuts. I don't know whether you have in uh, sitting here in Kiev, but I, I don't have electricity cuts in Bravari. Uh, well, me too, at least no more than I used to before this latest shelling. So, yes. But of course, the danger is there. There are Shahed's uh, first uh, Russians attack with Shahed's with Iranian drones. 
while Iran continues to deny that it is supplying Russia with drones. It's obvious that they are there. And with missiles. And one of the missiles, according to Ukrainian uh, officials, high-rank officials, including Chief Commander Valery Zaluzhny, one or two missiles, if, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, has gone, uh, has flew over the Romanian territory, the territory of a NATO member state. What do we know about this? Yes, this has been a very di- uh, interesting discussion in uh, in Ukraine because Ukrainian officials, as you mentioned, uh, say that there have been, I think, two missiles that flew over the ter- territory of Moldova, which in case of Moldova, I don't think was the very first case. I think this happened already for a couple of times before. And as previously, Moldova uh, voiced its, its concern over the fact. Uh, but also, uh, this was the precedent in terms uh, a Russian ro- uh, rocket, a Russian missile flying over the uh, territory of Romania, again, as reported by Ukrainian uh, officials. Uh, the reports have been that uh, that rocket flew as deeply as 35 kilometers over the border uh, of Romania and, uh, well, I think that was Romanian-Moldovan uh, border because the trajectory, if you if you look at it, uh, was from the south, targeted at uh, Ukraine's west, and the shortest cut was through the NATO territory, uh, Romanian territory. It was targeting Bukovina. Yeah, uh, the, yes. uh, the Ukrainian province, uh, the capital is Chernovitsa, Chernivtsi, a well-known town in the former Austro-Hungarian Empire, and after the Second World War, it became Ukrainian. Yes. and But on the other hand, uh, contrary to what Ukrainians have been saying, uh, Romania denies that there, there has been uh, a Russian missile in its airspace. And this is something on which a discussion in Ukraine has been based for a couple of days already, because uh, we, if, if we accept the fact, if we believe our military and we have grown into into the, the the habit of believing our military and trusting our military during the war, especially according to all the polls and everything, uh, that means that uh, maybe there is a reason for Romania to hush hush this fact. Maybe there is a choice there not to notice it because it was not like an immediate threat to Romanians, and that that's why NATO and Romania primarily did not engage. Uh, that's a possibility, but on the other fact, if that is the case, uh, maybe that was not the best of options that that Romania resorted to. Maybe because this is not only about uh, this being a pragmatic thing. If a missile goes through and doesn't hurt any Romanians, so Romania doesn't have anything to do. But maybe this is also the uh, thing about the image, the image of NATO, because maybe this was a test by Russia, run by Russia, like. Let's do that provocation. Let's see how NATO reacts. And NATO basically did not react. So I think NATO will uh, abstain from reaction as far as possible. This is not the first episode, by the way. We know that there was an episode when uh, missiles fell on the Polish territory and unfortunately mm-hmm. killed, killed people. Uh, two people, if I'm not mistaken. And Ukraine was saying that this is a Russian missile. And Poland and uh, was saying, and uh, I think United States as well, that it was a Ukrainian um, air, uh, air defense missile. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, we have two versions. There, was, there is no international investigation with, you know, many sides. So... We don't know. We, d- we don't know what happened. Um, who is telling? Well, somebody is telling 
Lights. Not somebody is <laughs> lying, whether Ukraine or, or Poland. And in this respect, in this situation, whether Ukraine, either Ukraine or Romania, are telling things that are not true. So maybe uh, one day in the future we will know who was telling things which are not true. But uh, this also shows that, of course, for Ukraine, you. I mean, Ukraine tries to persuade Europe that this is not only Ukraine's war, not only Ukraine should defend. Uh, thank you very much for economic support, for arms supplies, but they are not enough. We should engage more. This should be a repetition of the, I mean, this should be the same coalition as anti-Hitlerian coalition, etc., 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 while it's obvious that, I mean, United States will try to avoid the direct confrontation with Russia as much as possible. And you, if United States will try to avoid it, of course, NATO, other NATO countries will try to do that as well. Because if Romania says, we have been attacked, then it means that NATO should engage into the war. Nobody wants it in NATO. So we will be in this ambiguity, I mean, maybe for a long time. Okay, let's move on. And... Uh, uh, not very far from Romania, there is a country called Hungary, and uh, it's for a long time playing already a, a very interesting game, which is basically can be uh, identified, uh, not the Hungary as the whole country, of course. Uh, I love Hungary, I, I've, I've studied in Budapest, so I, I know how wonderful the country is, but it's now ruled by a very dubious person, which is called Viktor Orban, and... Uh, uh, we know that he met Putin uh, after this uh, invasion already, and Mr. Siarto, the uh, the Hungarian foreign minister, went to Minsk to meet uh, another dictator, which is, by the way, not recognized internationally, Mr. Lukashenko. So, what is going on? Well, I think what is going on is that uh, Hungary. The, this, the situation is that uh, Hungary is in the search of its very specific place. It needs to search for that place in inter on the international arena because, first of all, it has been loyal to Russia and before even the war, uh, Russian invasion into Ukraine, um, it has a very long record of Russian rhetoric. Hungary also has a record of problems with uh, Brussels, which is why Hungary needs to assume more and more subjectivity to become a more and more st strong subject of international relations on its own to, uh, well, to basically make up for that negative effect that, you know, it has roused with Brussels, etc. Uh, so uh, I assume what uh, Hungary is going to uh, do and is trying to do for the last couple of days with this uh, visit to Minsk is to find this new role for, for itself to, uh, well, basically what Mr. Siarto said in Minsk is that uh, we are trying to keep the channels open, uh, we are trying to promote negotiations, so nothing too specific yet. But still, uh, if you know any new stage of the war uh, comes about and there is indeed a chance for negotiations, etc., I think that uh, Hungary will say, like, yes, Brussels has been angry with us for different reasons. Uh, like, yes, we may have been Russian in some things, or they will hint so, but still, look, we're peacemakers at the end of the day. So I think that is an attempt to balance, quite uh, cynically, I'd say, but still, I think that's what's going on. What's going on here? 
And let's not forget that Hungary is very reluctant to help Ukraine militarily. I mm. think Hungary and Austria, it's interesting how this Austro-Hungarian <laughs> axis is reviving itself. Hungary and Austria are the only EU member states, or maybe there is uh, some other state as well, but they agreed recently that they will not supply weapons to Ukraine. So it's it's interesting how how history is going into this direction. And of course, for Ukraine, uh, it's it's a it's a very big problem because not only because of the EU that Hungary can block negotiations, Ukrainian negotiations about EU accession, uh, but also that Hungary can block, for example, the progress in NATO. And this is something very, very troubling for Ukraine these days. Uh, another neighbor of Hungary, Poland, is absolutely uh, remarkably different in the assessment of what is going on. And of course, historically, we understand uh, why it is that, because Poland and Ukraine had difficult history. It's it's not only the history of peace, it's also the history of struggle, the history of tragedies, the history of uh, uh, very tragic events during the Second World War, primarily the uh, the uh, Ukrainian attack on, uh, on, on Polish uh, people in uh, 1948 in Volhynia and the uh, repeated, recurrent uh, reply, Poland reply towards Ukrainian uh, population uh, of Volhynia and Galicia. Uh, But, of course, now the countries are very, very close and Poland understands that Russia is also a threat to its own sovereignty. So Polish President Duda said recently that Russia may win this war if Ukraine doesn't receive equipment and arms Urgently, So we see, despite this crossing the red lines by such countries as Germany, uh, countries as Poland and Ukraine are, are saying this is not enough. How do you estimate this? Yes, this refers to something that we have already mentioned during the, the discussion of the first topic today, uh, that uh, time of the, is of the essence and uh, decisions uh, adopted during the Ramstein meetings uh, or elsewhere, they are very important and very, uh, well, proficient, so to say, for, for Ukraine, but uh, they may not, n- not always be timely. They should be timelier. And this is something that Mr. Duda is talking about because uh, the quantity and the quality of the equipment is one thing, but the time of their delivery is another thing. Uh, initially, we saw uh, a number of statements uh, by uh, Germany, I think primarily, but also some other states, that uh, the promised tanks, or at least the majority of the promised tanks, were initially going to be delivered to Ukraine uh, as late as already the next year, 2024, which of course is uh, not going to allow those weapons to be game-changer in the battlefield. So uh, since then, since that couple uh, of weeks uh, passed, uh, the rhetoric has changed, and now everybody is saying that we are going to speed that up, we're going to try and f- to try and find some ways to do that. But... Uh, It is indeed a very black and white picture. We are on a very tight schedule here. The advance, as you already mentioned, has already begun, the Russian advance, the new wave. And uh, Ukrainian, U- Ukrainians are still trying to hold on to, the, uh, to, to, to their land, uh, especially in the Donetsk region, in the Donbass region, where the majority of heated battlefield uh, you know, is now situated. But um, yeah, as I said, we need to hurry. And that's, uh, you see, 
what why Mr. Duda is saying that is because he simultaneously is trying to assess the situation rightly. He is trying to be the leader as a country that has the, the I mean the leader of of a country that has uh, uh, has exceeded to NATO more recently than other countries. So it's a way to uh, prove uh, Poland's leadership in the bloc. Uh, at least situational leadership, and also it's the and most importantly, I think it's the issue of uh, Russian uh, of Poland's security first of all, because Poland would most probably be the next along with the Baltic states if uh, Putin goes unchecked in terms in, in military terms, uh, he may invade uh, other countries. And you know, earlier it was popular to say that. He's not going to invade because this is the NATO coalition. Every, it's going to be Article 5, etc. But with the war unfolding in Ukraine, we have seen so many fragile things in how NATO is organized, in the equipment, in the quantities of equipment, in how things are organized. So I indeed can see how there could be possibilities Putin could use even attacking a country in NATO. So that's why Poland is so preoccupied. For me, it's obvious that if Ukraine loses this war, Putin will uh, go and attack NATO countries because for him, he's already waging the war against NATO. Mm -hmm. And if he wins this war uh, in Ukraine against NATO, as he considers, as he thinks, then there is nothing that can stop him. Why wouldn't he attack Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Poland, which are actually much weaker militarily than Ukraine? So obviously such countries are, are very, very much preoccupied. What surprises me is, one, for example, Slovakia is not that preoccupied. This is a very interesting thing. Why we have such a, uh, such a strange public opinion in Slovakia. Okay, uh, we're moving to Asia, and there is a news that Pakistan gave Ukraine over 10,000 ammunition pieces for Grad. Grad is uh, multi-rocket launch systems, which are very important and very deadly, unfortunately, on the battleground. How do you assess this news? Well, again, uh, first of all, this is not the first uh, instance of how Pakistan has been supporting Ukraine. There has been other have been other types of ammunition that have. I think that was the one fifty two millimeter uh, ammunition uh, previously, but I might be mistaken here. Uh, and uh, th this situation, this support of Pakistan's, needs to be embedded in a broader picture. This is about geopolitics in the triangle between India, Pakistan, and uh, Russia, and maybe even the U.S. Because India's stance, who is the centerpiece in this picture, uh, has been kind of ambivalent. It is uh, the key U.S. ally in the region within the squad format, you know, for instance. Uh, but at the same time, the depth of the ties in the military industry and in the energy industry that India has with Russia, this is something, uh, well, quite unparalleled, I would say, uh, in, in uh, well, Asia. Uh, at least in the region. And uh, Pakistan, because of its uh, antagonizing uh, stance for decades with India, everybody knows that story and, uh, you know, the history of that standoff. Uh, Pakistan is uh, understanding that one of the ways to fight Indian interests in the region is to uh, exceed to the anti-Indian so coalition. Of course, it's not called it like that. But what I mean is that India and Pakistan usually take different sides. And for Pakistan, uh, now uh, it is an issue to, to help Ukraine, especially that uh, contrary to Russian-Indian links, 
Pakistan and Ukraine have had a very long-standing relationship in the military sector. Ukrainians have uh, delivered, I think, since 1990s, as many as 300 tanks to Pakistan and have been maintaining them. So this is a long-term story about how Ukraine and uh, Pakistan cooperate. Uh, and first of all, in the light of this fact, Pakistan is a good source of the Soviet, Russian, Ukrainian man-made uh, uh, equipment and ammunition, which already is scarce elsewhere in the world because of the intensity of the war in Ukraine. And secondly, this is a political uh, window of possibility for Ukraine because of this geopolitical situation, India, Pakistan, Russia, etc. It's very interesting. And by the way, maybe it's also a question of the economic interest. We don't know. But uh, I think India is really important. And I think that for India, it's important to see how basically this this um, reliance of the Russian military and security industry is a myth. Because Russians are now using everything they have. And these weapons are increasing, increasingly less efficient on the battleground. Uh, this artillery, these old tanks, which which are not really very much high precision. So maybe India should also, can also rethink its um, security and military uh, partners. And the last news, the Western states called their nationals to leave Russia and Belarus. Why? Yes, once again, this is uh, in context of what we have been discussing, this imminent a uh, new wave of uh, invasion, which basically is, has already been ongoing for a couple of weeks, I would say. Uh, but the fact that the Western states, I think those include uh, Canada, the US, several uh, European countries like France, have called their nationals to leave Russia and Belarus for security reasons, because of uh, how heated this, I mean, like of this, of, of how deteriorated the security situation in those countries are going to be against the backdrop of what's going to to, to happen in Donbass for, for the time to come. Uh, and also because uh, the risks that uh, the majority of these European countries have, they permit double citizenship, so their citizens may also be citizens of Russia and may be drafted, may be mobilized by Russia for the effort to invade Ukraine deeper. So uh, at the end of the day, this news is the testament to the fact that things indeed are brewing, once again, with an intensity compatible with the one that we saw during the first days of the war. This yeah. already is a big story. But this <coughs> the question is why they're calling their citizens to leave is that because they they are afraid of you know arrests, or as you said, they are afraid of these citizens who have double citizenship to be mobilized, or they assume that Ukraine will be attacking territories of both Belarus and Russia, which Ukraine is already doing, uh, hiddenly and uh, maybe with long-range missiles, it be, it will become increasingly possible. So let's let's see, let's follow the situation. That that indeed may be so, the direct security thing, but also the one thing that I would like to reply here is that maybe the Western countries are uh, not excluding the possibility that if Russia fails with this new invasion, which is a possibility, the entire West with Ukraine works on that. Uh, there may be public unrest. There may be, well, maybe not revolutions, but again, there may be rallies, etc., in Belarus and Russia. And it may not be safe for Western citizens in that sense in those countries too. So indeed, let's see. 
Right, let's follow the situation. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine, our series around Ukraine, in which we discussed the international context of the Russian invasion and of the current situation. Vladimir Yermolenko and Maxim Panchenko were with you. Don't forget to support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Also support our volunteer trips to the front line at paypal.ukraine.resistinggmail.com. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.